This week on 51%, it's all about sweet talk. Food writer and chocolate expert Megan Giller shares her love of bean-to-bar chocolate and how it challenges the larger chocolate industry. It's a lot easier just talking about it than it actually is to make it. It's a very difficult process. We also speak with Saratoga Tea and Honey's Haley Stevens about how to best prepare your favorite blend of loose leaf. I'm Jesse King. It's all coming up on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on. I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh Alita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse King. We cover a range of topics on this show, some of which, particularly this summer, can get pretty heavy. This week, though, we're lightening the mood, having a little bit of fun, and admittedly turning to some of our favorite sweets for comfort. Our main guest today has the dream job. She tastes chocolate for a living. Well, it's really much more than that. Megan Giller is an acclaimed food writer who has written a number of pieces about artisanal foods for the New York Times, Slate, Zagat, Food and Wine, and more. Upon discovering her love of craft chocolate, Giller launched an award-winning blog, Chocolate Noise, in 2016, which she eventually workshopped into one of the first books on the subject, called Bean to Bar Chocolate, America's Craft Chocolate Revolution. Now Chocolate Noise boasts a team of sommeliers who offer chocolate tastings and team-building events virtually around the world and in person in New York City and San Francisco. Giller is also a member of the Fine Chocolate Industry Association, teaches classes at the Institute of Culinary Education, and has judged multiple chocolate competitions. So while we all love cocoa, it's safe to say she's an expert. Aside from the bolder taste, Giller says a big reason why she loves bean-to-bar chocolate is the transparency in the craft community, something you don't always get from the more mainstream chocolate industry. She says the ethics behind bean-to-bar chocolate are part of why she considers it a revolution. While craft chocolate isn't quite seeing the boom of, say, craft beer or wine, she sees a bright future for it. I went on a trip uh, to Portland and went to a chocolate shop that said they specialized in chocolate bars as opposed to like truffles or, you know, cake or anything like that. And I was like, I don't really know exactly what that means, but I'm there. I'm going to eat all the chocolate bars. And I kind of discovered all of these uh, single origin bars that were being made bean to bar, being made from scratch, and all these different flavors in the chocolate that are naturally in there. So, you know, we think chocolate tastes like chocolate tastes like chocolate, but it actually, the cocoa beans taste different depending on where they're grown. And so that's what these bars were showcasing. And it just kind of blew my mind about flavor. Um, And I got really excited about that and brought all these bars home and started eating all of them and, you know, doing my research as I guess I called it that at the time. Um, And then wanted to tell these people stories too, and just learn more and more about chocolate. And so that's kind of how chocolate noise um, was born. It was uh, originally a series of stories about bean to bar chocolate makers that went really in depth. And um, all of them actually, except for one person, were men because then and now the industry is mainly dominated by men. And so it was 
actually kind of hard to find a female chocolate maker to interview. So that like slowly has morphed into, it morphed into my book, Bean to Bar Chocolate, America's Craft Chocolate Revolution, which then morphed into like all of these chocolate tastings that I lead for corporate teams. And, you know, it's actually not just me, it's a whole group of women at Chocolate Noise. Um, and we, different sommeliers who, um, specialize in chocolate as well and have a lot of uh, history and experience with chocolate. So it's been a lot of fun. And it's been like a, a genesis of all of these different uh, parts of chocolate that I never kind of thought I'd get involved with too. So how long has the craft chocolate, I guess, craze been around? Is what we're seeing now a relatively new trend? Yeah, that's a, a good question. So people have been making chocolate from scratch forever for, you know, thousands of years. Um, I think there's shatters of, of pottery that are like 7,000 years old from Guatemala that have like cocoa in them. <laughs> so people have been making chocolate from scratch for a long time. You know, it kind of through the industrial revolution became this very standardized process. It's very different than what chocolate is historically and also kind of doesn't actually have that much cocoa in it. Um, all the candy and chocolate that we grew up eating doesn't have very much cocoa. So in the late 90s and early 2000s, um, some American uh, business owners were like, hey, why do you need so many ingredients to make chocolate? When you look at a bar of chocolate, why are there like 15 ingredients on that? And we don't know anything about the beans or anything like that. So let's kind of scale it back let's just use cocoa beans and sugar and really focus on um, the flavor of the cocoa beans, the terroir, and then also um, sourcing them and paying farmers fairly and making that a big part of the information that we share. So the first one was called Scharfenberger um, and they uh, are out of California and you've probably heard of them. They uh, were bought out by Hershey's in um, 2005. When that happened, a, a whole bunch more people started making bean to bar chocolate. I think some of them were like, ooh, there's an exit strategy here. But most of them had really liked Scharfenberger chocolate and seen that it tasted very different and had a different ethos than the rest of the chocolate they could find and either wanted to keep eating that or they were, were inspired to make it themselves. So it it is very recent. And I think that's kind of why it's behind specialty coffee and like craft beer, those things are a little bit more familiar to us. People are just starting to wrap their heads around the idea that chocolate um, can be a luxury product and um, something that costs more too. <laughs> Where do chocolate makers usually get their cocoa beans? Like which countries? So the tree is called Theobroma cacao and it grows 20 degrees above and below the equator in, in a band around the world. So, and it's originally from Central and South America, um, but then has spread to, you know, Africa and Indonesia and Vietnam and all these places through colonialism. So um, you'll see it growing all, in all these tropical places and actually 70% of the world's cocoa supply comes from Ghana and the Ivory Coast. That's a very familiar flavor to us. And we probably all of the chocolate you eat has some beans from Ghana and the Ivory Coast in it. So once you get the cocoa beans, like what is the bean to bar process? You mentioned the two main ingredients being like cocoa beans and sugar. Is that really all you need? I mean, that kind of makes it sound easy, but how do you get a finished product out of that? You can definitely make it with just those two ingredients, and a lot of companies still do that. The bean-to-bar making process is really different from the industrial chocolate making process. So hopefully they're working directly with farmers and co-ops and, and sourcing the beans and getting to know people 
directly themselves that way. So it kind of starts with some of the sourcing. And then wherever they're growing, the beans are fermented and dried. So um, we don't ever think about chocolate as a fermented food, but it definitely is. Like if you tried a raw cocoa bean, it would not taste like chocolate. It would just taste super bitter. Um, so it's that fermentation process that starts to create chocolate flavor. And then they're usually dried in the sun for several days after they're fermented. So that always happens at the farm level. And in order to make good chocolate, those processes have to be pretty precise. So much is up to farmer expertise. And really any of the good chocolate we eat is because of the amazing work they're doing. After the beans are fermented and dried, they are sent to the chocolate factory, whether that's like down the street in Ecuador or across the world somewhere. And then they are roasted. Um, you can actually do it in your home oven. I've, I've made chocolate at home. Then um, they are broken open. And I don't know if you've ever had cocoa nibs, but they're the broken up pieces of a cocoa bean. So a cocoa bean has the nibs inside and then kind of like a husk on the outside that's almost like from an almond or something like that, very thin. But you want to take that part off. It just doesn't grind up very well. And also if there have been any heavy metals in the soil, the husk will absorb that. So you take that part off in a process called winnowing. And I love that all the bean to bar makers have like, build their own winnowers out of like PVC pipe and duct tape and like all this crazy stuff. Um, <laughs> and you take those nibs and you grind them up. Um, and the machine traditionally is called a melanger. Um, you're really trying to get them, if you were, are making European style chocolate, to be about 20 microns in size. So they're, you know, it takes, it's usually like stone on stone grinders that it, and it takes a lot, like you would break your Vitamix or your food processor or anything trying to do that. As it um, is being ground up, it becomes kind of liquidy because there's cocoa butters, the natural fat in the cocoa bean that starts to melt under the heat of, of all of that. Um, so you ground it up, then you add sugar and grind that up a little bit too. Um, maybe you add extra cocoa butter to make it even more luxurious and, and smooth. Um, and then anything else you're going to add, temper it, which is a process of um, heating and cooling it in a specific way, um, and then form it into bars. It's a lot easier just talking about it than it actually is to make it. It's a very difficult process. So I'm always in amazement. Like I, I tried to make chocolate for my book because I had um, been writing about all these people for so long and had not tried to make it on my own. And then uh, it was just like the worst chocolate that I've ever had in my life. Like it was so disgusting. And I actually brought it to a, a friend who owns a chocolate, a bean of our chocolate company and was like, okay, what's wrong with this? And, and he had a list of like so many things that were wrong with it. So <laughs> it was disgusting in many ways, basically. So <laughs> I'm like, let's leave it to the experts. I'm happy to eat the chocolate and taste it and talk about it um, and buy it. <laughs> and someone else can make it. What is it exactly that makes the bean-to-bar process different from industrial chocolate or chocolate from larger companies? Yeah, so I think the biggest difference is that uh, bean-to-bar chocolate always goes straight from, you know, grinding those nibs and adding sugar into bar form. Um, with industrial chocolate, usually once the nibs are ground up, they're pressed into cocoa butter and cocoa powder. And then the cocoa powder is treated with alkali to, like, make it less bitter and more uniform. And then cocoa butter is added back in and other things like soy lecithin, which is also an emulsifier, um, different preservatives, a lot of like 
milk powder and sometimes even milk fat, um, sometimes even like vegetable oils, which you really don't want to see, but sometimes are in, in that kind of commercial chocolate. And I think the biggest difference too is to legally be considered chocolate in the US, it has to be 10% cocoa. And um, most bean to bar makers, even if they're making milk chocolate or white chocolate, it's probably around 30% cocoa. Hershey's is 11% cocoa. Um, and you know, you can imagine all of the other kind of commercial candies are kind of in that realm too. You've written a lot about the need for transparency in the chocolate industry as well and some of the working conditions that people face on farms. Could you elaborate on that for me a little bit? Yeah. So the big chocolate companies really don't disclose where they're getting their beans or what they're paying farmers um, or what kind of the life of the farmers is like. Um, And, you know, part of the bean to bar movement, I think, and part of the reason I was drawn to it is this focus on ethics and, and focus on really working with people across the world as partners rather than just like someone anonymous who's going to supply this um, raw product. So that's a big part of of it. And I think a lot of people think they're doing um, really great when they buy fair trade products. But a lot of the the, um, brands that I really like go beyond that and use something called direct trade or transparent trade, where they're actually publishing a transparency report that says like, hey, this year we worked with these farmers, here's who they are, like here's what's going on at their farm, here's how much we paid them, here are the different social programs that we contributed to and and that kind of stuff. And in my own company, um, with our, our chocolate tasting, that's very important to me too. And so we have really developed relationships with a couple makers that we source from, and we know a lot about what they're doing and feel really confident that um, they are paying farmers fairly and working with them in a, in a really great way. Um, I guess I should just say, you know, most farmers, they get paid something like 80 cents per pound of beans. That's very hard to quantify, but I was able to kind of come up with a number like that for my book. Most of the bean to bar makers are paying more than that, like sometimes five times more. So, and it's above what fair trade pays too. As with any industry, there are a lot of labor abuses. And so uh, that's something that, you know, you really want to take into consideration when you are buying chocolate and looking at how things are sourced and who they're supporting. One thing I thought that was interesting is that you've mentioned that there can be sometimes it's like this perceived divide in the culinary world where men are seen as more likely to be like savory chefs while women are more likely to do sweeter pastry work. And yet a majority of the bean to bar chocolate makers you've met and worked with are men. So why do you feel that is? Yeah, that's a really good question, because I do think there are a disproportionate amount of female pastry chefs and chocolatiers. So a chocolatier is someone who buys pre-made chocolate um, from a bigger company and then melts it down and uses it to make truffles and chocolate bark and chocolate covered almonds and all those sorts of things. So, you know, that's very important that they do that, too, because I love all of those things. But the chocolatiers are there are a lot of women um, in, in that field. For some reason, the chocolate makers who are starting with whole cocoa beans, they are mainly men. And, you know, I've interviewed a lot of women about this, and I think it has to do with the way we're um, kind of socialized around machines, because there are a lot of machines that um, that you work with as a bean to bar maker. And like I was saying, sometimes you're even making your own machines to do something that, you know, the commercial version is for a much larger scale than you are and costs like 
hundreds of thousands of dollars. So you make your own. And um, the women I've talked to have said that they've been very intimidated by that um, and by the amount of physical labor too. I think that's true across um, all sorts of kitchens. It's, there's a lot of physical labor, right? Um, but so those two things have kind of, um, I don't know, not been as appealing to a lot of women. I think the other part that's interesting is that a lot of men who go into bean to bar chocolate are um, engineers or like computer programmers or like they have this kind of more technical background and then they apply that to um, their chocolate making. So I haven't heard really of any women who have that kind of background who then become chocolate makers. Well, are there ways in which you see the chocolate business changing? Yeah, I think that the biggest change, I hope, is with transparency and that people keep pushing that, keep, um, you know, more and more companies are publishing transparency reports. We're actually working on one for Chocolate Noise for um, the beginning of 2023. So, um, you know, I, I really hope that continues and that people keep working with farmers all over the world. Um, I do think that uh, the big chocolate companies are starting to copy bean to bar and even like appropriate some of that, the words like craft or bean to bar or artisanal and stuff when they're not necessarily doing that work. Um, I've even seen like transparent trade and stuff on labels when you're like, are you really doing that? Um, so I think that is an interesting change, but the overall industry really needs to work on decolonization. And I know I was talking earlier about, you know, cocoa originally coming from Central and South America and then migrating to all of these other places through colonization. And those same kind of systems are still in place, you know, from slavery from hundreds of years ago where people are, you know, really not being paid fairly, really not able to make a living. And then all of the value is kind of, and it's seen as a raw product and all the value is kind of sent to these first world countries to be turned into these luxury products. And so one thing that I feel very strongly about that and I'm on like a decolonizing committee within the chocolate industry and stuff, but also for chocolate noise, we really try to support um, makers who are creating chocolate in cocoa growing regions because it is so important to keeping, you know, all of that profit in the local economy and um, all that expertise too. So it's, um, that is something the whole industry really needs to work on and focus on. Well, Megan, thanks so much for joining me today. I just thought as a last question, what's your favorite style of chocolate? My favorite is a style called dark milk. And <laughs> that sounds um, complicated, I guess. Most people think of dark and milk as opposites, but a lot, you know, I love milk chocolate, but occasionally it's, it's too sweet for me. So, um, and I think a lot of bean to bar makers feel the same way. So they started making these dark milk bars that are a higher percentage. So they're usually like, 50 or 60%. So there's a lot of cocoa in it and you get that like rich dark chocolate flavor, but then they've also added milk powder, which is what you use to make milk chocolate. So it's like super smooth and creamy and it's kind of the best of both worlds. So that's my favorite. Um, and then, you know, there's so many different wonderful places where cocoa comes from. I do have my particular favorites. I really like um, kind of more nutty cocoa beans. So I think of like Venezuela and Ecuador um, and Ghana actually is one of my favorites. But I think one of the, the coolest things is being able to try different chocolates together um, when they are single origin like that and really tasting the differences. Cause some of them are like super fruity and you'll be like, oh no, they put dried raspberries in this or something. And, and no, it's just the terroir. And 
I have to say it makes amazing baked goods. Like I think that it, it really shines when it's something like, you know, a flourless chocolate tort or something like that, where you can really taste the intensity of the chocolate. But I have to say, I mean, I have a bunch of leftover bloomed chocolate, which is when the cocoa butter separates and it kind of changes the texture. I have a bunch of that leftover, as you can imagine, there's a lot of chocolate around my house and that makes its way into chocolate chip cookies. And everyone's always like, what did you do? These are the best cookies I've ever had. And it's like, well, I just use better chocolate. It's like almost the exact Toll House recipe, just better chocolate. So it's kind of interesting how that affects everything. Megan Giller is the woman behind the blog Chocolate Noise and the founder of the social enterprise and chocolate tasting company of the same name. They offer team building events and chocolate tastings online and in person at their website, chocolatenoise.com. You can find Giller's book on the subject called Bean to Bar Chocolate, America's Craft Chocolate Revolution at most major booksellers. Megan, thanks again for taking the time. This has been great. Thank you. Our next guest also has impeccable taste, but rather than chocolate, it's tea and honey that are her specialty. Haley Stevens is the owner of Saratoga Tea and Honey Company, a tea room in Saratoga Springs, New York. Stevens herself has actually worked as a chef in Italy in New York City. But her passion moved to tea when she started drinking matcha to get through those late night shifts. She says one of the best parts of her job now is hooking others on tea and teaching them how to properly prepare and drink it. People are finally starting to pay attention to tea and, you know, coffee is like been such a, is such a part of our culture and tea, there's many styles of drinking tea. Like people associate it with drinking it with their grandmother or maybe like, um, hippie earthy places, or, you know, like it has so many, um, or Asian style, there's so many styles. And I think that it just kind of got like lost in our culture, the quality of tea that can be available to us. And that is available to us. And especially when it comes to restaurants, cafes, tea had always been an afterthought. And so it's really cool to see restaurants and cafes um, becoming wholesale customers or, you know, paying attention to every detail of parts of the service and experience that the customer will have. And that's really beautiful. And we've had a couple opportunities to pair tea with different tasting menus from different chefs that I really respect. That is such a wonderful moment in tea that instead of, you know, pairing with wine or maybe with wine, you're, you're showcasing tea as a beverage to, to be enjoyed with food, which is really a great shining moment. So just to start off, like what are the different types of tea or at least the types of tea that you work with? My passion is tea and tea meaning tea that comes from a plant called Chimia sinensis. Um, so when we use the word tea, sometimes we call like chamomile or fruit or spices, we call that a tea. But if it doesn't have the tea leaf in it, then technically it's not a tea. Oh, we'll call that an herbal tisane. Um, so tea is a specific plant and the categories that really interest me um, the most are white, green, oolong, black, and aged teas. And so we really explore that at Saratoga Tea and Honey and dive into the different styles of within those categories of tea, different origins, and every season is different. It's an agricultural product. So just like wine or olive oil, everything always changes. That's so really kind of exciting. 
You've mentioned that part of what you loved about tea was the long cultural history behind it. What do you mean by that? So um, specifically in preparation of tea, this is a good example. Like in Western style preparation of tea, you use an English style teapot, which is, you know, a little bit larger. You're using smaller amounts of tea, lots more water, and you're steeping for a long period of time, say three to four minutes. In traditional Eastern style brewing methods, you're using a very small vessel. Sometimes it's a tiny little teapot made of clay or a little gaiwan, which is a lidded bowl. And you're using a lot more tea in relationship to a, quite a bit less water and you're steeping it only for um, sometimes seconds. So when you're exploring sort of every, the expression of these tea leaves in very quick steeps over and over and over again. And that's a really big cultural difference in the, you know, consuming tea. But I think what they both share is um, that there is a preparation and that the, the preparation in tea sometimes is almost as important as when you drink the tea, because there's, you're taking time away from whatever you were doing your busy life and you're making the tea, preparing it, enjoying it. And that's really healthy too. Is there a difference between the way it's packaged too? Like between loose leaf and bag tea, does that actually affect the taste at all? Yes, it, there is a huge difference. Um, so basically in bags, you have CTC tea. Um, so that's really small particles of tea that are meant for strong, robust infusions. Loose tea, high quality loose tea will be the, the whole leaf, you'll see that. And it when you infuse it, you're getting much more complexity out of the leaves. And also you have the ability to reinfuse those leaves over and over again, which is really neat, um, as opposed to sort of the one shot tea bag that's kind of meant to be more uh, robust, tannic, et cetera. So yeah, you get definitely get more nuance with loose leaf and also the bags um, sometimes those, especially those flat bags can restrict the leaves from opening up. Meanwhile, we really want the leaves to fully express themselves to be in like a large infuser is always better. But when it comes to honey, what's the range of flavors there? And how do you know what kind of honey to take with your tea? Like which pairings do you like best? That's a great question. So the honey is interesting because of this wide spectrum and that, you know, there can be similar flavor notes year to year with a certain type of honey. For example, buckwheat always has this molasses-like flavor. Um, and so buckwheat means that the bees were pollinating mostly buckwheat flowers um, to produce this honey. It's a very, very dark honey. And then there's lighter honeys like bees from pollinating acacia trees or orange blossom from Florida or, and you know, all over the United States, we have different places of agriculture where there's um, large, vast areas where, you know, three miles worth of apple trees, et cetera. And that they know when the apple trees are in bloom that the bees are going and pollinating them. Um, and so they impart different flavors into the honey. So we actually find, and this is kind of simplistic, but it's kind of true, is that the lighter honeys in color generally go towards more floral, light teas, white teas, um, tea with different herbs blended into it, or herbals um, in general. And then some of the dark honeys like buckwheat or palmetto honey or Italian black forest, those really are delicious in dark teas like dark oolong or black tea or aged tea. So it's, so, it's a very simple um, kind of really nice little clean <laughs> suggestion. Well, you said matcha was your introduction, but do you have any other types of tea that are good for maybe first time tea drinkers or those converting from coffee? Yeah, I mean, I think matcha really hits the note if you're into caffeine and you're coming over from coffee and you want to try something that has really clean energy. But for other people, I think, you know, the T 
tea leaves that are blended with fruit flavors are always really, really popular. You know, we have a sweet peach tea or a strawberry fields and people love those. They love them ice, they love them hot. Um, and those are really fun. Sometimes the, the flavored teas can be the intro to sort of the other kind of traditional categories of tea. Haley Stevens is the owner of Saratoga Tea and Honey Company, a tea room in Saratoga Springs, New York. You can find them online at their website, saratogateaandhoney.com. Haley, thanks for speaking with me. Thanks, Jesse. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. It's produced by me, Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. A big thanks to Megan Giller and Haley Stevens for taking part in this week's episode. To learn more about our guests and the show, check us out at wamcpodcast.org. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at 51% Radio. Let us know what you think and if you have a story you'd like to share as well. Until next week, thanks again for joining us. I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl, I was nobody else, I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half, he was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool somewhere along the way. At night and down the hallway, I had to learn how to My cool, no electricity, hot rain on the concrete, sweet bells in little girl dreams. They said, Oh, I want a big life, not a house that could have been like. Where are you taking me? Where are you taking me? They said,